Today's the 7th of April, and we're interviewing Joy McCorriston here for A Story of Us through APOP at Ohio State University. So thank you so much for joining me today, Professor. And to begin, could we talk a little bit about a new book or article that you've read recently that struck you, something that is in the field or even something non-academic? Yeah, well, it's really a pleasure to be here. So thank you for inviting me, Andrew. I have been a longtime reader of the New York Times book review, and I really like that page where the they, they ask an, an author or a prominent public figure, you know, what's on your nightstand? And then there's like a stack of eight or ten things that they're reading, and sometimes yeah. they're very diverse. And I like that because that's my nightstand. Mm-hmm. So I think about two things that I'm reading that are kind of connected to two projects that are are kind of defining who I am and what I'm doing these days. And they do interconnect, although it doesn't seem on the surface of it that they do. So one thing that has intrigued me recently is this very large book that was put out by David Graeber and David Wengro called That Changes Everything. And the book is really big and heavy. All the reviews of this very public-facing book started out with reviewers who said, I haven't read the whole book, but... <laughs> yeah. And actually, that's exactly where I am. I'm about halfway through, but... I've already talked uh, in the department with kind of led a discussion of uh, chapters of that, thrown a chapter onto a syllabus. And the book in, in general touches a lot of themes, but it touches some themes that have interested me for a long time. One of them is that complexity doesn't necessarily mean hierarchy. Another is the idea that wealth doesn't mean power in every society. And and both of those sort of speak to a larger anthropological theme of great interest, which is that different societies have very different values and different perspectives on what's important. And that sometimes those values, and this is another point they make in the book, lead to deep differentiation of cultural practices, that that people really are, societies are defining themselves by what they don't do and how they're not like an adjacent society. This is something the authors call schismogenesis. And, And I really like the way that they put those ideas together and put them out in a way that brings together a lot of research on prehistory and ethnography, and at the same time is outward-facing and has kind of an applied lesson for our general world today. Another of the books on my nightstand, and there are quite a few of them, comes out of some very intentional reading and inquiry that I task myself to learn more about black culture and African-American culture and practices. And so I'm reading a book called The State Must Provide by a writer for the Atlantic magazine, Adam Harris. And I'm finding it really interesting and some very interesting intersections with the ideas that I've just mentioned with David Wengro and, and David Graeber's book. But in this case, the book is about the history of segregation and Jim Crow and its impact on education, at least the chapters I've read so far. So I'm also kind of in the middle of that one. And of course, I take to that kind of my my interest in understanding more about the cultural differences in our society. We we are not a homogeneous right, no doubt. society, and and so those are some of the things that are on my nightstand. Wonderful, thank you so much for sharing. So I wanted to 
kind of go into your specific field and talk a kind of, especially for non-experts, if you could define archaeobotany and what it is, what are its methods, and what does it teach us? So those sorts of, of themes. Sure. Archaeobotany is a field that's also sometimes called paleoethnobotany. It is a largely methodological practice of looking at plant remains from archaeological contexts to better understand the long-term history of human interactions with plants. And that spills over, of course, into a broader theoretical inquiry about environment and society and how humans have developed in tandem with their environments. And ultimately, we have influenced each other. So the methodological approaches of archaeobotany are include fieldwork and lab work, and I've been deeply engaged in both. So I have worked in a number of countries across the Middle East, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Oman, Yemen, and Egypt, collecting plant remains and modern plants, and using the materials that we collect from the archaeological sites. They come up as these tiny little charred Mm. fragments of wood and of sort of more durable, tough plant parts. So, you know, a lettuce leaf doesn't have Mm. much chance of surviving, but a wheat grain or the stalk of a wheat plant does have a pretty good chance of surviving, particularly since getting it to an edible state usually involves some kind of processing with fire and, and heating. So we find these sort of charred, accidentally burned pieces of plants that tell us a lot about not only what people ate, but also how they processed and allocated their foods, how the foods were grown, what kinds of fields and terrain were used for agriculture. Sometimes we find something really surprising like a site that has that's in a wetlands that has plant remains that could only have been coming from very much more dry environments. So you're thinking, well, you know, there's clearly something going on here that people are not just walking out the door and, and go into the field. So that methodological approach then feeds into these larger questions about how, as human societies, we've developed in tandem with our environments. Now, I wanted to briefly ask about something. I'm wondering, I was having conversations with some of the grad students in our department. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how humans have shaped the environment and how we might not realize the degree to which the very terrain that we're on is totally reshaped by humans. Like, I know that there are folks in our department that work in the South Pacific, and they were saying that an entire island is basically, you can see on LIDAR, like looking down into the soil, that humans have totally reshaped it. And how does that kind of restructure how we can think about human environment interactions if the whole space that we're occupying is already changed? Well, that's been something that has been a great interest to me. I started my career interested in the origins of agriculture and and food production in the Middle East in a cohort of scholars and in a community of scholarship that was uh, very focused on that problem, Mm -hmm. the origins of food production. How did domestication happen? And I've come to realize that that the sort of problem with focusing on 
agriculture and human engagement with plants in that way, historically it's understandable how we came to think that way as scholars and consider that to be kind of a problem worth solving. But it has pointed scholarship for a long time away from the consequences of agriculture. And so I've become much more interested in understanding and teaching students about agriculture and settled societies practicing agriculture have shaped our human history and our landscapes than in the actual origins of agriculture itself, which is not so important a break point as we might have thought. Looking at the moment maybe is not as important as the consequences like you're suggesting. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. And so some of my earlier work in the Middle East was quickly turned to understanding the development of agricultural economies and how those changed over long and short periods of time and understanding what you might call kind of the history of agriculture and food production, because in the Middle East, pastoralism is an amazingly important part of food production and food producing economies. Great, wonderful. Um, I wanted to ask about the more recent work in Oman and Yemen. So what in particular about working in those countries intrigues you? Was it that you were led there by working in other places? And what does this region of the world tell us about early agriculture? Of course, we all are familiar with Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, but I'm wondering about other parts of the Arabian Peninsula and North Africa as well. Sure. Well, that's the latter part of your question, wondering about other parts of the Middle East, was part of what led me to start fieldwork there. There's been a long history of research in Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and at a time when I was ready to start a research project in the field, the field was crawling with archaeologists in in Jordan, for example, and in Syria. And so I opted to start some basic exploration work in southern Arabia, in southern Yemen in particular, where there had been very little archaeological work. And it was an easy place to choose because it was perfect for addressing a question that stems out of what I just talked about, in that after you get the development of these food packages of crops and animals in the eastern Mediterranean, for example. You get wheat and barley and uh, sheep and goat. In sub-Saharan Africa, you get millets and teff and other crops of the Ethiopian highlands. And then you get a set of monsoon-adapted legumes that emerge in southern India. So Yemen and southern Arabia lies kind of at the epicenter of a map that's drawn around those crop packages. And my question in starting research there was, how does agriculture spread? How how do people who have the opportunity to select and adopt crops and animals from multiple sources select and elect to use some and perhaps not others. Mm -hmm. And this question really was not being addressed, and it wasn't known, certainly for Southern Arabia, when we started working there. The the sort of paradigm model 20 years ago when we started that work was kind of an amoeba-like spread based on what we knew about the spread of farming into Europe at that time. And 
a sense that, you know, once people invented a crop package with uh, domesticated animals, you, you know, farming villages would bud off and you would get more farming villages and people would just kind of spread out across the landscape. Whereas we were interested in probing whether that was really an effective model. And in, in the work in Southern Arabia, what we learned was that it was not a particularly effective model. And that led to um, some very interesting changes in the fieldwork uh, focus. I, I guess research isn't good research unless you have new questions come up. And so we got very interested in the interplay of new ideas and new technologies, thinking about you know, farming and the availability of domesticated animals and plants. And the interplay of those um, technologies with strongly held cultural tenets, and this takes us back to that book about schismogenesis and, you know, the Wengro-Graeber argument about how different societies hold different values. And so those very strongly held cultural tenets and the way that those are maintained and how practices change even as the cultural uh, frameworks are maintained through time became really important in understanding how and what people chose to incorporate into their lives in Arabia. So to continue a little bit on that theme, I became interested in what we call persistent pastoralism. Our team did recognize the and, and found the earliest archaeological evidence for domesticated animals arriving in southern Arabia. And through good collaborations with experts in multiple disciplines, we were able to understand the context of those adoptions and the ways in which they were incorporated into a cultural practice that maintained social ties over great distances and small populations thinly dispersed in very harsh arid environments and that those became those were the guiding principles these practices that maintain social ties i mean were guiding principles that that really dictated what people would and wouldn't do so would you say that this persistent pastoralism, as you defined it, or as you mentioned, would you say that that's kind of the cultural tenet that you're looking at, that people wanted to continue doing as they had done before, following in the vein of like ancestors and whatnot? Or is that not necessarily? People wanted to continue to be socially connected. Mm -hmm. And part of the environmental constraints, if you like, or the environmental ability to do that is dependent on climate and on the desert conditions. So the Arabian Peninsula passed through a period from the end of the Pleistocene and into the first half of the Holocene. So we're talking about a period that runs from about 10,000 to four to 5,000, 4,000 years ago, uh, 5,000, 6,000 years ago. And that early Holocene period is a period that we know as Green Arabia. Green Arabia is means that the monsoonal winds, the, the wind belts that push moisture off the ocean and inland were stronger for that period of time, 10,000 to 6,000, 5,000 years ago. And so there was rainfall, not a lot more, but enough 
to maintain green spaces, probably some, well, certainly standing water for longer periods of the year. And this is something that that has been documented and was manifest across the Sahara, across the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, and across areas like Rajasthan and the Indus Valley, mm-hmm. so that um, it was a widespread global phenomenon, the, these changes in the wind belts. About 6,000 years ago, that started to diminish. The monsoons became weaker, and the rainfall penetrated less far into the Arabian Peninsula. And across that transition, we can recognize that the biomass in the desert, the plant life, would have been less. Therefore, the herbivore biomass would have diminished. Therefore, the opportunities for any kind of predator, including humans, dependent on the herbivores, would have been diminished or certainly been constrained. And that humans at that time would have faced a thinning of population and a thinning of resources and and been forced, in a way, to uh, adapt to these exogenous climate changes. We haven't got enough evidence to dig very deep into what those adaptations look like. The research is ongoing. But we can surmise that with smaller groups of people able to be supported in thinner distributions, that they had a couple of choices. One is to settle down and adopt farming in very small areas where a surplus could be generated. the answer to that is the oasis. Yeah, and the other nice. is to, to disperse. And for those people who dispersed, the challenge then becomes maintaining connections to other small households. So a pastoral group might have 60, 70 animals and you know, five to seven people in the household. That presents kind of a challenge. What do you do when your eldest son needs a wife? How do you get information about where the rain is good this year, where the pasture land is good this year? How do you exchange that finely produced obsidian blade for um, some marine shells to decorate the wife that you're trying to procure from your mm-hmm. son? And this is stuff that I'm making up out of thin sure, air. Yeah, we, get no. the, we get the material remains, but we don't, as archaeologists, see the behaviors of people. But we can infer that becoming more thinly dispersed presented new challenges. And what we do get archaeological evidence for is the emergence of building monuments and practicing reunions, gatherings of people that were episodic, were not um, sustainable over an entire year, but could be specific in time and place to support people exchanging information, exchanging goods, exchanging marriage partners, and affirming their common belonging in a social community. A continued shared regional identity. Exactly. So in order for pastoralism to persist, one of the things that people needed to exchange were animals so that the genetic pool remained viable. They may not have known, you know, modern genetics, but uh, they sure understood the importance of having new stock, um, new blood come in. 
So what they would do is to gather to practice a great feast, sacrifice animals and consume them in large gatherings, and then to construct a monument that commemorated those gatherings and served quite literally as a touchstone for social identity. That's where we were in the year that we obtained the Red Bull and gave away our sister to this particular group and against the promise that we would have a daughter come in later on. Again, I'm bringing up a narrative out of concept, but we have the archaeological evidence that shows those gatherings, and we understand that these practices took place and that they took place repeatedly. We find many monuments. We find the sacrificed remains of animals And we understand the volume of meat that was generated that just couldn't be preserved without refrigeration in a desert environment. So I wanted to pivot and ask about a project or a recent textbook that you're working on with Professor Field from our department about the Anthropocene and how that's visualized through this early human history that you're narrating here. I wanted to ask, what is the best means by which to teach this topic or this new phenomenon or kind of contested idea of the Anthropocene, especially to undergraduate students? How do we kind of engage with that idea and push it towards, you know, undergraduate teaching? Well, I think I can answer that best with a little bit of history of how we came to write a textbook. Neither of us sat down and said, hey, let's write a textbook. We'll start at, you know, page one. (laughs) So we... We're both, we had both engaged with teaching world prehistory in our department and understood that as archaeology learns more and more about world prehistory, the burden of teaching those sequences to students becomes a lot of memorization, a lot of repetitive sequences, and that those sequences reproduce a narrative about world prehistory that is out of date, yeah. frankly. The narrative that other textbooks use is a narrative that started with Gordon Child in 1925 and became kind of codified in world prehistory in about 1970 as the origins of modern humans in Africa, the origins of food production in sequences around the world, the origins of city life, the origins of civilization, the rise of empires and the collapse of empires. And, you know, students were getting tired of memorizing this sequence in China and Mesoamerica and the Middle East and all these different places that kept getting added in. So we took a course in backward design over at the University Teaching Institute, which has changed names a few times. But this backward course design helped us to really throw out that narrative and reconceptualize what we wanted our students to learn as outcomes first. Flipping it. Yeah, flipping it. Exactly. And what we want our students to learn is the excitement of archaeology. We want archaeology and world prehistory to be relevant to students so that they care and can see how what we know about the past helps us understand who we are and where we are today. And so we developed a course that had a completely different narrative. And then Dr. Field turned to me and she said, well, there's no textbook for this. 
let's write our own. And actually, she said, let's write our own stuff. So for a number of years, we developed uh, readings for the class. And then that was so much work, we th- and we got so excited about the new narrative that we decided to share that both with greater development and better illustration and more widely than our own classes. So that narrative answers, I think, answers your question about um, how to visualize human history as an Anthropocene. And we didn't start by saying, let's write a textbook about the Anthropocene, but the narrative really is an Anthropocene narrative. So we understand that, you know, we open that talking a little bit about what the Anthropocene is, where we are today in terms of a global change to our environment. And then we talk about what it means to think about prehistory, the interface of technology as the mediator between humans and their environment and the development of human technologies. But then we talk about human voyaging and using technology as the uh, tool to take us all across the face of the earth and to spread out. We talk about settling down. We talk about global impact, about impacts, impacts on new lands. When humans land on islands, when they spread into deserts, when they spread across grasslands and adapt to those environments with technology, they also have impacts and they change them. And so we look at that. We talk about, you know, part of that narrative is settling down and the challenges of settled life and adapting to climate changes and other kinds of environmental changes in one place with fixativity of belonging in place and, and territorial identity. We talk about the origins of food production briefly, but our chapter emphasizes the spread of agriculture and the impact of agriculture. We talk about living in cities, but our chapter emphasizes hierarchy and hetero- and particularly heterarchy, the differentiation of economic roles that comes when people are engaged in very complex exchange systems. We have a couple of chapters on theory that have to do with human behavioral ecology and human identity and practice. And both of those are intended to help students understand human behavior and its consistency through time. We then move into some very important parts of the narrative that have to do with building monuments and building society that connects to my own interests in Arabia very tightly. We talk about conspicuous consumption, including, you you know, the ultimate sacrifice, human sacrifice. Students find that interesting. As they do the conversion of large surpluses of things like grain into alcohol. And Mm. of course, that's relevant to our own society where we convert large surpluses of grain that could feed lots of people into high quality, marbled, fatty, great tasting beef that feeds very few people. So, So again, we try to make those connections that are very relevant across time and societies. We then talk about the development of writing as a technology for administering surplus and and supporting hierarchies. And then we talk about extraction and extractivism, which is another way of looking at colonialism and the spread of extractive societies into other areas. We talk about extracting resources from the ocean without putting anything back, although you could argue we're putting a lot of plastics back in the ocean. And we talk about enslavement 
and the extraction of human labor, both the Spanish in the New World and the extraction of human labor from Africa to other parts of the world and the, and the landscapes of enslavement, the way that the extraction of labor has an impact on the kinds of crops that people grow, surpluses to feed extracted labor while they're sitting in barracoons on the West African coast, and the ways in which labor was, extracted labor was used to provide surpluses of sugar, rum, rice, tobacco in the New World. So then we finalize the book with a chapter on the Anthropocene and where we are today. And we find that that brings students through prehistory connected to history, connected to our modern world with an understanding of a consistent human behavior that we can see uh, through time and space. And if I can say one more thing about sure. this book, yeah. this textbook, we are very intentional to mix up the timeline. Right. I was going to ask if there's like a through line that connects everything across region and time. So that would be great to hear. The through line is narrative of the Anthropocene. Mm. The through line is that we are consistent in a global narrative that leads us through landfall, human impacts, the development and expansion of domesticated food production, the packing in of populations and exchange societies leading to conspicuous consumption, strategies that people use and have used through time to use monuments as touchstones for social belonging and social consensus, and into conspicuous consumption, extraction of resources, and our modern condition of a globally changed landscape. Great, thank you. So I noticed in the research I was doing about what you've been working on that there's often collaborations, right? We were just talking about the textbook that you worked on with Professor Field and then other collaborations in research with, again, Professor Field and Professor Mark Marth from our department. So uh, what does working together in this capacity with like-minded scholars, both in our department, like I listed, and then folks, you know, collaborators in the Middle East and other areas of the world, what does that do for your own scholarship? How does that kind of shape what you're looking at, change the questions, re reframe or... How does that all work? Sure. You know, that's a really good question. It's one I'm kind of excited to, to talk about. I think the most important impact or the most important outcome of working with other colleagues closely is that I'm, I'm challenged to learn. I'm constantly picking up from my collaborators new ideas, a new excitement, a development of a research theme a challenge to think deeper about something I thought I knew or thought I could explain. So I find that working closely with other scholars both produces better scholarship, but also keeps me interested in continuing sure. as a scholar. So for me, the ivory tower isn't a Rapunzel-like locked room at the top of um, at the top of a tower. So it keeps me challenged. It keeps me learning. I also can say that. It gives me a platform and, and helps me embark on more ambitious kinds of projects. And this is typical of the trajectory of many scholars is that, you know, an early career engagement is uh, often best done solo or there is a, a need to demonstrate one's scholarly capacity early on in ways that are clearly authored. However, 
it's possible to do bigger things, things that are in some ways more exciting and more rewarding if you're working with other scholars. So we have embarked on some pretty ambitious projects. Writing a textbook is no small oh, deal. Yeah. When we were first told that it would take four years to get it to print, Dr. Field and I were appalled because we were just astonished and kind of appalled because we already had a manuscript and we thought that was the, the work. But it was a lot more went into it. And it's not the kind of thing I can imagine embarking on alone. The project with Dr. Moritz, I mean, with each of these scholars, I feel like I've been involved in a number of different projects, uh, some of them more formalized and visible, uh, many of them sort of behind-the-scenes collaborative efforts in supporting other colleagues or working um, to build community in our department. But the more public-facing project with Dr. Moritz is a National Science Foundation, very large award in coupled dynamics of socio-ecological systems. And in that project, we brought together 10 different scholars whose individual methodological and intellectual strengths complemented ours, not and so Dr. Moritz is only one of a number of collaborators. I would mention also the other co-PI is in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary, EEOB, and Organizational Biology. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, Dr. Ian Hamilton, who brings great strength in mathematics, statistics, and in computational modeling and artificial intelligence. So we have a project Located in Oman, where I was already doing fieldwork, and we've done a lot of fieldwork for that project, collecting archaeological information, but also data that are the proxies for past environments using a number of different proxy sets. So one of the former graduate students, uh, Dr. Abigail Buffington, did extensive work with phytolith assemblages. These are the small silica skeletons that develop in plants and have bring a researcher an opportunity to kind of identify the kinds of plant communities that grew on a particular part of the landscape. We have worked with Dr. Sarah Ivory at Penn State, who was a postdoc on this project, and continues to study the remains of Hyrax middens, places that these little furry desert animals use as latrines for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, and deposit macerated plants and a very sticky concentrated urine that traps pollen. So by looking at the plant remains and the pollen in these very old latrines, we are able again to get an understanding of the biota and the vegetation that grows in specific parts of the landscape. I was just in Oman a month ago looking at or facilitating the work of a couple of Italian colleagues who are picking up some of the work that was done by a Russian scientist in collaboration and extending that to look at a range of termite mounds, which are also archives of some of these same kinds of proxies, pollen, phytoliths, and isotopic ratios that are found sort of 
fossilized, if you like, in the, sna- in the shells of land snails. All of these proxies point to levels of rainfall, vegetation communities in the past, and the advantage of looking at the termite mounds is that we find them where we don't find the hyrax middens and vice versa. So we're able really to, the idea is to develop a comprehensive understanding of a landscape changing through time. And these landscape changes will help us better understand the impacts of climate changes, which we know going right back to the beginning when I was talking about the monsoon and monsoonal changes in Arabia. And in turn, that helps us frame a context for the changes in human settlement and movement and monument building and small pastoral camps that we see in the archaeological records. So we've done you know, the archaeological field work to excavate and date and identify the spatial locations of monuments in the desert and settlements in some of the wetter areas of the landscape. So the idea, and this is, I said it was an ambitious project, so it takes a little while to describe it, but we take all that data from field work all those different proxies from environment and from archaeological data sets, and then use those to test a model that we've been building that is a computational reconstruction, if you like, or or uses real modern parameters to set and behavioral guidelines to set up a model of vegetation and climate in this particular area of southern Oman, and to be able to run that model through multiple iterations. So it is really an agent-based model in which the agents, which are pastoral camps, can make decisions um, based on information about where to move, when to move, what are good strategies for maintaining herds and maintaining the camp. And by looking at the behavior as played out in the model and the outcomes of that, and comparing that to what we know about the past from this proxy data, we hope to be able to understand the decision-making and the dynamics of past change in environment, landscape, and human societies. Wonderful. That's a great example because everybody brings the different ways that they would look at how do we assess the environment of the past. And someone might not have thought that the termite mound would be a good spot to look, right? So bringing all those different types of meaning making and knowledge production. Very fascinating. Thank you for sharing. So I wanted to pivot again and ask about a new project that you're working on that seeks to connect Ohio State to uh, historically black colleges and universities. I'm wondering what that entails and what has this work with a team of both internal and external partners again taught you how to make academia more accessible, more equitable, more diverse? Well, sure. And this, I think, will link our listeners back to my original selection of a couple of books off my nightstand. So I mentioned that I was reading Adam Harris's The The State Must Provide about uh, segregation, the history of segregation in education, a history of resources being directed to land-grant universities and what that entailed during the era of Jim Crow and the emergence of historically black colleges and universities. And that interest and that project grew out of a, a awareness that 
all of us who have a certain amount of privilege, I'm white, need to be engaged and become allies. In the wake of Black Lives Matter, I think, um, and the uh, killing of uh, George Floyd, I think it brought that into a broader consciousness in a way we haven't seen certainly in in my adult lifetime. And so a couple of us got involved in a project that ultimately the Ohio State University provided some, some seed funding to think through what a partnership with uh, HBCU would mean for Ohio State. What a, would a model look like? How could that emerge? And, and what are the challenges and logistics of that? And we learned a lot of things through that. And I could talk about that project for quite a while and will, I, I think, in probably another context. For me personally, it drew on anthropological skills and challenged some of those skills in things like cultural competency, embracing difference, the value of an immersive experience, and the a willingness to engage in difficult conversations and probe, seek, seek out being uncomfortable. Anthropologists learn to do that, or they don't become anthropologists. Yeah. And so I don't put myself forward as being particularly skilled at that, but as recognizing that those are the skill sets of a very good anthropologist. And I'm willing to take what I can do to a project of social justice. So one of the things that I would say coming out of that project, which is not finished and never will be, is that we all need to seek out people different from us, to embrace cultural difference, to be curious about cultural practices that aren't our own. And that ta that it's one thing to kind of do that in field work and to center one's research around it. It's important to do that intentionally as part of our skill set for life. And so the project has been immersive in the sense that it's a group of people who have talked through some very difficult conversations, have recognized that we need to keep talking at times, that the, the work is never done, that that set of difficult conversations is, is the immersive experience. And in a sense, although it sounds very simplistic to say it, that is the model. That is what we as academics can do is to seek out people different from us and develop those relationships in an immersive and embracing way, seeking really to develop them in depth and to understand the perspective of other people. Those are, that's, you know, what a good anthropologist does. Right. That's what our field emphasizes. So to bring it into not just teaching and research, but also collaborative projects mm -hmm. is, is key. So I wanted to ask about the experience of being the director of the Middle Eastern Studies Center. Uh, what are the roles and responsibilities that the title holds maybe that you weren't expecting? So what are kind of the requirements as maybe they were expected to be and then not expected? And then what tangible impacts has the opportunity to learn about and foster more of this cross-disciplinary research that we've been discussing? How has that impacted your research and teaching? Well, those are um, a, a good lot, series. Yeah, those are a good series of interlinked questions. What is it like being the director of the Middle East Studies Center? Well, I'm new 
to that role. And the previous director had set the center on a very clear path and was there for a long time. So I'm I'm learning about the roles and responsibilities. I'm learning more about the history of the center. I've been a member of our Ohio State Middle East Studies Center for a very long time and had some engagement. In fact, my first teaching here at the Ohio State University was supported in part by the Middle East Studies Center, which wanted to support bringing Middle East issues into the Department of Anthropology. So I think it's had a tangible impact on our department because I've been here for quite some time. But my role as the director of the center connects me now more frequently with colleagues in Middle East studies specifically, in the humanities Uh, less than the social sciences, because there aren't as many of us right now in the social sciences. So I'm finding that I have developing new connections in history and in what is going to soon be our Near Eastern languages and cultures and South Asian languages and cultures department. Yeah, so that was added in. And in a visioning process that we went through last autumn, It became clear that there is a need for stronger community across departments. And if there's one thing that I do feel very confident about through my experience leading teams of multidisciplinary, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual scholars in the Middle East, sometimes in very harsh desert environments where we're all camping together for a couple of months, I feel like I have developed a fair amount of experience at being kind of a team leader and and a, a team builder. So I think that coming out of that visioning process, looking, you know, where faculty and students are eager for more of a community, there's a good match right now with my sense of being a person who's strategic in building teams. So that's the role that I see myself playing in the Middle East Studies Center and in engaging more decision-making among faculty as a, as a team working on a common cause. Wonderful. Um, to, to close, I wanted to ask if there's anything else you'd like our listeners to know about your research, your teaching, anything else to, to mention or highlight that we didn't really talk about or that you'd like to talk about a little more, whatever you'd like to, wherever you'd like to go with the question. Well, I th- I'm on the cusp of publishing with colleagues an, an article that culminates a lot of the archaeological work that we've done looking at small-scale monuments in southern Arabia. And in that article, which is not, not yet out, but has come a long way in terms of the, the research, we've been looking at the kind of twinned behaviors of of pilgrimage and iconoclasm. And I say twinned because I'm becoming interested in the connection between the archaeological and theoretical understandings of monuments in the past and the way they have built societies and the ways that societies have repurposed monuments to reify or reorient 
social meaning and social belonging. And we see this in prehistory. It can be almost easier to explain with a prehistoric example. The example we use in our textbook is uh, one of the ones we use is Stonehenge, which we now know was built by groups of Neolithic people whose beliefs we didn't really, we can't really reconstruct entirely, but had something to do with ancestors. Stonehenge through the ages has been a touchstone for many different social beliefs. But, you know, to this day, there are, I guess you might, there are many ways to describe them, but there are uh, New Age neo-Druids who gather at Stonehenge for the summer solstice every year. So when we wrote the textbook, one of the things we insisted on was that the picture of Stonehenge not be a pic- the picture you see everywhere of Stonehenge with the stones, but that it be full of people. Sure, yeah. Because people are literally using Stonehenge as a touchstone for contemporary social ideas and social constitution. Why explain it in those terms? Because I think it has a lot of relevance for some things that are happening right now in in the U.S. We've been through a period of very violent, in some cases, iconoclasm of Confederate memorials and Confederate statues and the removal of uh, Confederate symbolism from state flag. Those statues being pulled down or statues being a rallying point for social beliefs about white privilege or southern traditions i mean however it's however it's framed really reflect the same kind of human behavior around monuments using a monument as a way of as a touchstone for social constitution and for expressing a commonly held ideas that are formative and constitutive of social identity Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Professor. I really appreciate it. And this has been Story of Us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Andrew. And it's really been a pleasure to to talk to you and to engage with our listeners.